everybody. This is Jim. And Jeremy. And we are on show 42. And we got a good show for you today. Our main topic, we're going to be talking about Brian Johnson's uh, fairly new book. Came out last year. Yep. The Lives of Brian. Lead and singer a- for ACDC, if you for some reason don't know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're going to be taking a deep dive into the book. Jeremy's going to be reading each chapter for you, so you don't have to buy the book. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we are going to go in the... We're going to talk a little bit about each chapter. Uh, before we do that, uh, we, have a, we have a beer in theme of the show. <laughs> Believe it or not, I found a themed beer for ACDC. Okay. And it's called Thunder Funk. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it's a double IPA, Thunderstruck, of course. Yeah. Every time you hear the word thunder, take a drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice sounding pour there. We're going to do something new, uh, probably do this every podcast, is we're going to talk about albums from 50 years ago. We're not going to get into too much detail, but we're just going to mention them. What I like to do is I like to listen to, you know, vinyl and I like to listen to the albums on not on the anniversary, maybe, but you know that week because I listen like Friday or Saturday. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something to do. Maybe uh, even an album you never really listened to, give it a listen, or something you haven't heard in a while. Uh, so because uh, we're just starting this, I'm gonna talk about March, which is this month, and then we're gonna, and then I'm gonna tell you about April the albums that are turning 50. So that would be, you know, 1973. March 1st, we had Dark Side of the Moon is released. May have heard of that one. Yeah, I was more into The Wall when it came out. Just a time period of me getting into music. At one time, that was one of like the top 10 all-time selling albums. I don't know if it still is, but Mm -hmm. I know it was way up there. I don't know, Jeremy, if you know, but if you play this with The Wizard of Oz... <laughs> Sync backwards or something? No, it goes completely okay. with the movie. Okay. You turn the sound down on the movie, uh-huh. it's like timed perfectly with, with the scenes. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I've heard it before. I've never done it. And I don't know if that whole album is the... I don't think it's the length of the movie, so... Then we have ABBA releases their first album. Wow. Which was not released in the U.S. until 1995. Wow. So there were no real big hits that we know from ABBA on this one. It was called Ring Ring, and that's March 26th. March 28th, Led Zeppelin, Houses of the Holy. And this does not contain the song Houses of the Holy. The next album contained the song Houses of the Holy. Wasn't that Houses of the Holy 2 or something? No. It, well, the song... Well, the album's Houses of the Holy, but Physical Graffiti, they recorded the song for the album and felt that it didn't fit in with the other songs. Mm. So they held it until... I always thought that was weird. That is very weird. Then we got um, March 31st, Alice Cooper, Billion Dollar Babies. And then April, so you have some time to... What I've been doing, I'm trying not to buy too much vinyl anymore because I have like... I don't know. Probably have 400 albums. I don't know. But sometimes I'll buy albums just to listen to them uh, around the anniversary. April 2nd, Capitol Records released 
two collections of Beatles' greatest hits. Okay. And I have them here. Wow. <laughs> There's a red cover, which is uh, 62 to 66, and a blue cover, which is 67 to 70. Nice. And they were released on the same day. And what makes this special for me is that I had the, the blue one uh, on 8-track, and it was my first Beatles album I bought. Okay. And I just loved Back in the USSR, and I, of course, some other songs on there. But that was my introduction pretty much to the Beatles. Even though I had heard of the Beatles, that was the first album I owned. April 13th, we have David Bowie, Aladdin Sane. I don't know too much about this album, so this is one I'd probably give a listen to, you know, around the 13th. Mm-hmm. Uh, April 16th, we... Oh, this isn't an album. I just have this in here. <laughs> Paul McCartney's first solo television special. Uh, it's called James Paul McCartney, aired on ABC. And the special included, of course, performance by McCartney and Wings. Uh, April 17th, The Eagles, Desperado. And the title song is, uh, Rolling Stone did a list of 500 greatest songs of all time. That song is 494. <laughs> if it's still on the list, we don't know. It's As a, time goes by. It's in a Seinfeld episode, know, too. You know, like Lizzo or Cardi B might have knocked out one of those. Yeah, yeah. For greatest songs. You know, WAP mm-hmm. might be mm-hmm. on there now yeah. as number two or something <laughs> behind the Beatles. Who knows? <clears throat> April 20th, we had Daltrey. And not the Daltrey, <laughs> the new Daltrey band. Roger Daltrey's first solo album. Since then, he's released nine solo albums, and his last was 2018. April 30, Paul McCartney and Wings, Red Rose Speedway. It was the second album by Wings. And it had the song My Love on that one. We got John Fogarty, his first solo album. The Blue Ridge Rangers. And he's since released 11 solo albums, and the last in 2020. Marshall Tucker Band, their debut album with Can't You See see. on there. Okay, so those were albums turning 50. All right. I'm going to take a drink. I didn't even take a drink yet. Oh, I did. This is a double IPA. And this is, um, I always try to read these cans, but I'm half blind. Very colorful. I'm trying to see where this is from. It's Bentwater Brewing Company. I think it says Massachusetts. Okay. <laughs> Great, right. So now um, I found some new, new stuff that's come out. That, there's not much coming out or that has come out already uh, this year. Of course, we're only in the March. But I found a band called Fake Names, their album Expendables. And it's a Brooklyn-based band. Um, they kind of reminded me of The Clash and The Stooges, which was Iggy Pop's band. Two songs I like was Can't Take It and Go. And then I found just today an interesting, I think it's a band or maybe it's a person, Johnny. I've heard that before. And it's never fair, always true. He's from California. These are kind of poppy alternative songs. One song, Strawberry Chainsaw. Interesting. He has some interesting names for songs on here, but kind of reminded me of the Strokes song last night. Okay. Maybe the guitar in there. Uh, Adios kind of sounds. This is weird because there's two new songs that I've found in the last, I don't know, couple weeks 
that sound like the weekend bright <laughs> lights the the drums are exactly the same and the other song is pink pink's new song runaway and i played runaway and i played bright lights and they have the same exact drums huh. same beat same progression that's and as i'm listening to this album some of the songs i was thinking of beck they're they're interesting pop alternative songs but i think after i was almost done with the album i noticed there is a song believe it or not on the album with beck on the song (laughs) (laughs) which is the most unbeck song on the album yeah and then extreme released a new song their album comes out doesn't come out till i think june i don't have a date here oh june 9th that's one that i'm looking forward to now i didn't really like it because i i don't i don't know extreme other than what's it more than words more than words um wholehearted i'm sure okay. you would know so i don't i don't know extreme as being you know heavy so if you ever want to check out an extreme album i'd recommend porta graffiti Okay. I, that's one of my favorites from top to bottom. And they're they're listed as heavy metal. Yeah. That's which I it's funny. Their lead singer actually tried out for Van Halen at one time. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> he actually, sorry, didn't try out. He was the lead singer for Van Halen mm-hmm. for one album maybe. Really? I didn't I didn't even know that. Yeah. I can't think of his name. And then we have some new albums. One that just came out was The The Church. They're an 80s band. They did it pretty big song under the milky way in 1988 and if you like the church you'll like this album it's uh it's very gospely no it's uh atmospheric i should say not real trippy but if if you listen listen to the church before it's it's there's nothing different here (laughs) if you're a fan of the church you'll like this album U2, of course, March 17th, which is St. Patrick's Day. Songs of Surrender comes out, which are reworked songs. March 24th, I'm excited about this one. Depeche Mode has a new album. 15th studio album, Memento Mori. Then we have a couple, then we have two Pink Floyd albums, uh, March 24th. Not new ones. Uh, we have The Dark Side of the Moon, live at Wembley from 1974. Interesting. Remastered. And then we have the 50th anniversary of Dark Side of the Moon. Comes out the same day. I think I have Dark Side of the Moon already on vinyl, so I probably won't be buying that. (laughs) April 14th, Metallica. 72 Seasons, their 11th studio album. April 21st, The Smashing Pumpkins. It's A-T-U-M, (laughs) Atom, a rock opera in three acts. Now... This album is released in three separate installments of 11 songs. So some of it's already been released. November 15th, they released uh, Act 1. Act 2 is January 31st. And Act 3 is April 21st, along with a physical box set consisting of all 33 songs. And it also has 10 additional songs. But I listened to some of it, and I used to like Smashing Pumpkins. And I just, I don't know why, I can't stand Billy Corgan's voice. Yeah, they're totally hit or miss. I listen to some of this new stuff, and I'm, it's really grating yeah. <laughs> for me. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so that about does it, unless you have anything, Jeremy. Oop. Jeremy's falling asleep. <laughs> Sorry. In line with Brian Johnson's book in ACDC, 
And this is in line with when You Shook Me All Night Long made the charts, uh, which was in 1980. Yeah, September 6th. Uh, it debuted at number 89. Then by October, let's say it was at 47, 39. November 8th, it was 35, peaked at 35. So we have the top 10 for the week ending September 6, 1980. And I'm going to start it off. So we've got number 10, Looking for Love by Johnny Lee. This song is weird because it reminds me of Saturday Night Live. There was a commercial for Buckwheat the, from the Little, from Rascal. the Little Rascals. Okay. And that was one of the songs on the supposed album. Okay. Looking for Love, you know. <laughs> this was written by Wanda Mallet. Bob Morrison and Patty Ryan. And it features Marcy Levy, who we interviewed on backing vocals. This is Lee's biggest hit, and to date, at this time, his other hit was actually a cover of Ricky Nelson's Garden Party. 20 artists had rejected this song. The song was number one for Bill, on Billboard Country Chart for three weeks, and number five on the Hot 100 chart. Now, the reason this song got pretty much to number one and interest was that it was in urban cowboy the movie mm -hmm. there was a club called gillies where they filmed urban cowboy johnny lee was one of the main headliners at gillies the actual club and john travolta took a liking to the song so they included it on the soundtrack so i think that's why it took off okay number nine is late in the evening by paul simon i just love this song i love the horns in this song now, this song, what makes it unique is the drumming of this, in the song. And the drummer used two pairs of drumsticks, one in each hand, in order to give the impression of two drummers playing together. Oh, wow. That's cool. Number eight, Take Your Time, Do It Right, the SOS band. Now, there's a couple songs on the top ten that I think were kind of, you know, leftovers from the disco era. <laughs> I mean, there's a couple funky songs in here, but... And uh, this song's almost eight minutes long. There's a female singer, Mary Davis. This song has some sexual innuendos in it. Baby, we can do it. Take the time, do it right. We can do it, baby. Do it all night. <laughs> yeah. And then towards the end of the song, there are so many things for us to do and see. Let's take some time to be alone. Lock the door. Pull out the phone. Yeah. I'm not going to sing it for you. <laughs> But I thought maybe it's late night at the office, you know, they're doing some typing, research, turn the phone off. Maybe I'm thinking too much into it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So what does SOS stand for? Not a clue. It's not save our ship. It's sounds of success. Oh, there you go. Look at that. <laughs> okay. So this song went to number one R&B charts for five weeks. And peaked at number three on the pop charts. Number seven, Give Me the Night, George Benson. And this is a, another funky song. I just love the, I guess it's a keyboard in this song. That sound. I remember this song. And I remember the, being, you know, drawn to whatever that sound <laughs> is. It's a good, you know, when you hear it, it's, it, you get a good feeling about it. I don't really like George Benson's voice. I don't know too much about it, but this song, it sounds like he's sucking on helium to me a little <laughs> bit. I don't know. And what I found out, Herbie Hancock is playing piano on this song. Okay. Hmm. 
This was uh, Benson's first single to hit number one on the U.S. Billboard Soul Singles. Number six, we have Magic, Olivia Newton-John, who I love. This is one of my least favorite songs. I mean, it's a decent song. But this song was in the movie Xanadu. Never saw it. (laughs) Okay. You probably don't want to see it. Because this movie was so bad. Have you heard of the Razzie Awards? Mm. The Raspberry Awards. They're like awards for the worst films. Okay. This was what made whoever created the Razzies, this was the movie that he got the idea that there should be awards for bad movies. Okay. This was the movie. Okay. Got it. But I feel Olivia Newton-John didn't really ever record a bad song. And Billboard ranked this song as the third most popular single of 1980 behind Blondie's Call Me and Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2. It's good company to be with. Uh, John Lennon even named this song and the song All Over the World, ELO, as two recent songs he liked. And this was in September 1980, shortly before his death. So John Lennon liked that. So, And Jeremy, you're going to continue at number five. Yeah, number five, we have Fame. No, <laughs> just kidding. It, it is called Fame, but it's by Irene Cara? Cara? Cara. Cara? Yeah. Uh, which came out in 1980 on the nose, written by Michael Gore and Dean Pitchford. Uh, It was part of the theme song to the fame film and TV series. Mm -hmm. It's a catchy tune. It was also her debut single. She was playing the role of Coco Hernandez in the film. So I thought that was pretty cool about the song. And it did win an Academy Award, Best Original Song, mm-hmm. and a Golden Globes. Unfortunately, Irene Cara wanted to live forever, but unfortunately she passed away in 2022. Oh, man. Yeah. Unfortunately, that happens. Uh, number four is a song that if you haven't heard it, you've probably been living under a rock, but <laughs> it's one of the sappiest, most depressing songs out there and it's all out of love by air supply of course Mm -hmm. and every time i hear this song have you seen the movie van wilder i don't think i have okay it's a comedy about a kid who basically wants to stay in college forever okay but this girl that he's chasing after he thinks that she's not interested in him he's playing this and drinking (laughs) (laughs) just miserable and every time I hear the song, it's I just think of misery. It's ugh. I don't know. I think it's one of the best songs, like ballads ever written. It's it's a great. You know, I'm not giving it credit because it's a yeah. great song. Just mm-hmm. it's a very <laughs> the yeah. lyrics are very depressing. <laughs> I mean, I have something to admit. When Air Supply was, we're talking probably 1976, 77. Mm-hmm. I I had Air Supply albums. Uh-huh. I was trying to, you know, I was in recovery for my Barry Manilow phase and then Air Supply came along and I don't know what happened but you were making love out of nothing at all yeah I just couldn't get enough of them um I think this is up there with Meatloaf's two out of three two two out of three ain't bad I love that song interesting I found something (laughs) I did a little research on Air Supply okay first of all Air Supply is still around and I think as of a couple of years ago, I saw a video of them singing and they still, their voices still sound 
the same. Yeah. Yeah. I think I played this for my wife. She's known, she knows this song, but she says the guy, I think this came up. I, w- I listen to Yacht Rock, I have to admit. And my wife said that his voice is just too high, you know. And, <laughs> um, he might be higher than Steve Perry. Yeah. So they, they have 17 albums. Yep. And every album has a song that has the word love in it. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Learn something new every day. I'm going to read them to you real quick. Here we go. <laughs> All right. Love and other bruises. Love comes to me. The one you love. Young love. The power of love. Not the Huey Lewis song. <laughs> Put love in your life. Love is all. Speaking of love. Evidence of love. Feel for your love. The book of love. Don't throw your love away. Love is the arrow. And the last album had love sex. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay, enough about air supply. Well, moving on to number three, it was actually funny you mentioned disco earlier because this was a note I had with this song. It's Emotional Rescue by the Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. which actually this album is classified in the disco section. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised to hear this song on the list because I like the Stones for mm-hmm. the most part. I know a lot of their music kind of sounds similar. Or they have very like basic you know, sounds to them, but this to me seemed out of place. This isn't one of their, when I think of the Rolling Stones, I could probably name off two dozen songs. This one wouldn't come. Yeah. A lot of people uh, don't have this album on their top 10 list. Yeah. But this was the first album I bought by the Rolling Stones. Really? Oh man, I'm bashing on your eyes. Because some some girls came out like two years earlier Uh and you know, she's so cold. I love that song too. That's on this album. Yeah. That was my first. Like I said, these are bands that I I heard on the radio, but that I started to get into. And then, you know, a new album comes out. And maybe when I first was buying albums. Mm -hmm. So this, yeah, this was the first (laughs) album I bought. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, Number two on the list is a guilty pleasure song for me. I actually enjoy this one a lot. It's Sailing by Christopher Cross. It's a soft rock song, but it, it just... To me, it had a lot of emotion and feeling attached to it, and the the lyrics just, I don't know, they, they're so powerful in a soft kind of way, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. And it just always kind of resonates with me and picks me up, in a sense, because it's, it's a very relaxing, enjoyable song for me. I have to say, I, like, hate this song. <laughs> <laughs> I despise this song. Wow. It's just... Maybe because I heard it so many times on the radio. Probably. You know, when it came out. I prefer Christopher Cross, the, um, I think it's called Arthur's Theme. I don't know if I know that one. Between the Moon and New York City, that that song. I like that song. And I I actually saw when uh, Mike and I saw Todd Rundgren, Mm -hmm. he was doing the White Album tour. Christopher Cross was in his band. And Christopher Cross did this song. <laughs> so must have I think been a relaxing I took a show. bathroom break. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I don't know if you know, but you've heard the term. I've mentioned it. I just mentioned it earlier. Um, Yacht Rock. Mm-hmm. This is the song that started Yacht Rock. Yeah, I would believe that. You know. Yeah. The term Yacht Rock. It just feels like you're in a yacht, relaxing, and just on the water, you know, going at kind of a casual easy pace well the basis for this song the inspiration he had an older friend from his high school uh-huh. his name was al who would take him sailing as a teenager the kid was 
you know, richer than him. I never had a boat. Yeah. Me either. (laughs) I was lucky if I had a fishing pole. Right. Yeah. Uh, Number one, back to the disco. Upside down. Boy, turn me. Diana Ross, Upside Down. What a great song. Mm -hmm. Uh, This one just... All the feels can lift you up when you're having a bad day. Put this on. To me, this is, well, anything by Diana Ross. You really can't go wrong. But this one is definitely one of my favorites that she performs. And Except, um, doesn't she sing Ain't No Mountain High Enough? I don't like that song. Yeah, I don't like that song. <laughs> but that's a duet, to be fair. Okay. To be fair. She just, yeah. They just needed a powerful woman voice in that song. And uh, this was written by Niall Rogers, uh, who was in Chic. Oh, you know, okay. the freak says chic and Niall Rogers is pretty, I think he's a, he's a producer. He's pretty famous, like, um, producing albums, probably more than, you know, writing. Probably freaking out somewhere now. Yeah. I like, I like, uh, the Supremes a lot and I didn't, I don't really know many Diana Russ solo songs, but I know this song and I actually kind of like that song. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that does it for a top 10. This was a good list. A lot of times we get lists that you find for, you know, a certain week or month or whatever the case may be. And usually I like at least half of them, but then there's mm-hmm. others that I'm kind of like, yeah, how was that on the list? This was, yeah, I these mean, were pleasant give or take songs. a song, yeah. Yeah, and the, normally, we, I mean, we've been doing 60s and 70s, and so this is 1980. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we'll ever do like 2010 or, you know, because <laughs> the state of music, yeah, you know, it's not good right now. Top 40. But so coming up, we're going to get into Brian Johnson's book. So after this little break, we'll be back. Okay, we're back, and we're going to be talking about Brian Johnson's book, The Lives of Brian. Yes. This came out last year, and I think... So, we have a funny... I have a funny story about this. Okay. I don't know if you remember, but you... I think you told me, or you texted me, that your book was due to arrive. And it caught me off guard. If I was here, you saw my facial expression. If it was via Mm -hmm. text, you didn't. Yeah. But I was like, I didn't get a notification. This book was delayed several times. I think it was delayed, like, I want to say eight months. It was a long time. Yeah, at least. Well, long story short, too late. But uh, when you messaged me, I looked into it, and sure enough, it had been delayed so long, my credit card had expired. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to update my credit card information. They weren't even going to ship me the book. (laughs) Yeah. Which would have been devastating. And we're talking about the autograph. Yeah, because I pre-ordered copy. the signed copy. You know, ACDC is my all-time favorite band. So it, it was a matter of, yes, I wanted to read the book, but I also would love to get a signature from my favorite lead singer. But yeah, that was something that I thought was worth bringing up. I almost didn't get the book because my credit card expired from being delayed so long. <laughs> I like that this book is actually signed because... There's a thing called a book plate, mm-hmm. which is actually a label. And I have St- uh, Stephen Van Zandt's book, and it's a book plate. Mm-hmm. 
So he's just signing book plates and they're slapping them in there. But, it, it, you know, it's also a real signature. But I like this. He actually opened these books. Yeah. Signed them and they're yeah. stamped. Like they were, yeah. you know, Official. verified by someone. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty cool, too. So this book is about a little over 300 pages. And we are going to go through each chapter. But, you know, we're not going to go into depth on everything. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't like ACDC that much, it, I like a good, I love H- ACDC, but uh, I like a good biography, mm-hmm. especially a music biography. For sure. Once you get through with the podcast, you might not have to buy the book. I don't know. Especially because what I think I liked about this, sometimes you can read biographies of anybody, a celebrity, a musician, athlete, and you kind of question yourself some of the stories you're reading there like did they embellish that is that yeah legitimate and i didn't feel that as i was reading this book it seemed straightforward and nothing totally yeah. out of the ordinary you know what i mean i mean he does mention i know there's at least one part in here he does say this is how i remember it yes someone else might say different so right. i don't right. know exactly what that was But I want to read just a paragraph here from the author's note we're going to start with. Brian says, this is a book about what happened when I didn't get what I wanted, but never stopped believing and never gave up. Luck also played its part, of course, but I truly believe that you can achieve just about anything if your dreams are urgent enough and if you don't just sit around waiting for something to happen. Mm -hmm. So I really like that. So this book starts uh, with the, the prologue. Um... And the book starts, if you're familiar with ACDC, uh, you'll know that Brian had some hearing problems. Yep. Like Jeremy mentioned uh, to me that he thought it was odd that he he didn't mention this (laughs) to anyone in the band. He didn't want to tell anyone. And he actually did, after he had, it was a concert, I think it was in Canada. Mm -hmm. And it was raining and cold. And when he got on the plane, he noticed that he couldn't hear. He thought he kept thinking that his ears were going to pop. Right. So they did some uh, they did some shows after that, and like halfway, two thirds through the concert, he couldn't hear anything. Uh, he said no one seemed to notice. <laughs> and the joke is that all of ACDC's songs, you know, pretty much sound the same. Right. So then he does see a doctor when he gets home to Florida. And he goes on for like six weeks before he sees a doctor. The book then goes into chapter one and we start with, uh, you know, Brian's parents. The book ends with more about his hearing loss. So we'll end the podcast with the ending there. But that chapter one is called Alan and Esther. His mom was from Italy. <laughs> what? I'm laughing because I told you this before the, uh, this morning I texted you. And I'm a huge ACDC fan, my all-time favorite band. I was always under the impression that Brian Johnson was from Australia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm, I don't know why, I just was under the impression that that's where he was from. I think I thought that too, because I knew ACDC was from Australia. Yep. But ACDC, Angus Young and Malcolm, they were actually from Scotland. Right. And something was going on in the 50s. I think it was the 50s. Things weren't too good in Scotland. And I couldn't figure it out if they were giving them free transportation to Australia. Angus and Malcolm relocated 
And I think Angus had another brother, which I didn't know was in the band, the Easy Beats mm-hmm. and had a hit song. So they relocate to Australia. And then Bon Scott, I'm pretty sure, oh yeah, Bon Scott was also born in Scotland and his family Moved. immigrated to Australia. Yep. But Brian is from England. Yes. <laughs> As they were explaining that, I was just so caught off guard. So Brian, Brian's dad was, um, well, he, he met Brian's mom in Rome after the war, World War Two. Uh, he joined the army in 1939. So Brian and his family live in a house of 17 people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Nope. Because I doubt the house was that big. So chapter one, I found an interesting... We're just going to talk about some interesting things from each chapter. And maybe Jeremy has something else interesting from the chapter. But I found something was pretty funny. They couldn't afford clothes. Mm-hmm. And his mom knitted all their clothes. Uh, they decided to take a trip to the beach. Mm-hmm. And his mom knits them uh, some swim trunks. You know, because they're, what are they made out of? Cotton? No, not swim trunks. It's like that Yarn. mesh material. <laughs> so anyway, when they go in the water and they don't, you know, the, the water just absorbs like a sponge, the swim trunks. Mm-hmm. And... He described, you know, they get out of the water and he says their, their willies are showing and they're, you know, they're just falling down. So I, w- I was very amused. I saw someone maybe that reviewed this book and said, Brian should be a comedian. <laughs> but this book is, is pretty much lighthearted. Mm-hmm. Some people didn't like that he didn't go into, that he didn't really go into too much about the band. At the end of the book, he does say, you know, maybe there's another book. Right. So this book only goes up to Back in Black. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very late in the book before you even get into the ACDC oh, yeah. stuff. Like the last three, four chapters. So this is basically about Brian's life mm-hmm. before, mostly before ACDC. Yep. We got chapter two, Out in the Cold. <laughs> this is where Brian discovers football and music. Mm-hmm. Now, for Christmas, he gets a reel-to-reel tape player with a microphone. Yep. Now, at this time, 1950s, there's not much on the radio where he is. Mostly, um, I think, children's programs. And he tries to record some songs from the radio, but he has a budgie, which is a... I think it's it's something like a parrot or a parakeet. Oh, okay. Okay. So he tries to record this, but when he plays them back, he can, he can barely hear the music and only the bird right. singing into the microphone. He was probably about seven, eight years old. Brian then decides he's just going to start singing into the microphone. And it's funny, his dad, I got the idea, wasn't a very, he wasn't abusive. No. Just not emotional at all he was one of those military fathers that was just very set in his my takeaway very yeah. set in his ways very stern doesn't, yeah. doesn't get happy doesn't get angry just kind of yeah does his thing but very strict mm-hmm. but brian records he's i guess his father overhears him recording his voice and he says oh you like the sound of your voice don't you yeah <laughs> yeah uh chapter three 
is well, called I love oh, out in yeah. the cold sorry yeah. I got <laughs> the um he talks about snowball fights mm-hmm. and how he enjoyed having them but he hated being involved in them because his mom knitted his gloves <laughs> oh yeah and he's like the problem with the gloves was there was velcro that went all the way up your arm through <laughs> your like winter coat or mm-hmm. whatever snowsuit and it connected to the other glove because she didn't want the oh, kids yeah. to lose their gloves so yeah he, he couldn't make snowballs or he probably couldn't throw them <laughs> yeah yeah okay chapter three a wop bop a loobop he goes to italy with his mom mm-hmm. which is great you know well, for a young kid to see he's kind of forced to go to italy with his mom well this is what's interesting in I don't know if it's chapter one or two, but his mom actually tries to leave, like yeah. leave for good. Right. Uh, his father shows up at the train station yep. and kind of convinces her to come back home. Right. So we don't know what, he doesn't go into detail what was going on there. So then he actually does go to Italy with his mom. I take it his dad didn't go with them because he doesn't mention his dad. Also in this chapter, he discovers uh, a show called Farming. It sounds like there's one channel on the TV. Yes, the BBC, right? One day. I think this is to, um, just to add on before the farming thing. I think this is when his mom is supposed to be getting, not gifts, but like a, a relative had passed away. And she was supposed to be getting their belongings. But a lot of them oh, okay. were ending up lost in the mail. Her oh, okay. brothers, I think, were stealing stuff because they were like, she doesn't need that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting, too. Like, they had all this really nice stuff that was they were supposed to get, and they never got. Yeah, and the brothers the were taking it. it before she could get it. Correct. The station um, that was showing this show Farming, I didn't understand this, but somehow... They decided one day, I guess, the show a uh, singer, which yeah. was Little Richard. Little Richard. You know, he was first describing, and I thought it was going to say Michael Jackson, because mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like shiny suits, you know, thin tie, mm-hmm. and the hair or something. I, I forget how they described it exactly, but... They had what was called an interlude in the show, and Brian says it was even worse than the awful programming itself. Said things like, here's a short film of fish swimming in a pond. Here's an elderly Scottish woman decorating a pot. So this is when Brian kind of discovers rock and roll. Then he hears it while he's standing on a porch and he asks to hear it again. Uh, Chapter four is Showstopper. This is where Brian joins the Sea Scouts, which is, I guess, a form of uh, Boy Scouts. Sounded like torture. Yeah. (laughs) He sings for the first time in what's called a gang show, which is like a variety entertainment show. I don't think it was part of the the Sea Scouts, but it was, it might have been a separate thing with the town. So some of these chapters were just, like I said, go through briefly. But we want to say we we thoroughly enjoyed this book. I read this book in about a week. Jeremy, it might have taken longer, but... Two, two and a half weeks, yeah. So chapter five, A Rough Business. Um, this is where Brian joins the church choir and he gets uh, an acting job. And he says, my life changed. He said, when I got the part as a child actor on Tyne's Tease Television, and uh, he appeared on various segments of the weekly one o'clock show. And then 
he actually appeared on a drama show in the year 2000. <laughs> I guess it was a sci-fi. And he had one line, Daddy, what's a cold? And he said, because colds were supposed to have been eradicated by then. Yeah, so that was his first acting job. Now, one story out of this chapter was when he was in the Sea Scouts. Just like the Boy Scouts, they have uh, various things they have to do to get badges, I guess. But this one was him and I don't know how many kids were with him. It sounded like it was near a lake, near, and it sounded like they had to walk a long way to get there. Mm -hmm. But the thing they had to do was trap a pigeon. Yes. Do you remember this? Yes. And they had to make a, they had to trap the pigeon and then kill it and make, <laughs> make a stove out of mud, which I, I still, I was trying to imagine how you make a stove out of mud. Mm -hmm. So they're there for a little while and they realize there's no pigeons around. So they, they start walking and they find a store. Believe it or not, they're just selling pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I think it's the commander. I think he was called the commander of the scouts, like the scout leader. He comes over or he shows up and they had cooked this pigeon and he bites into it and the guy almost breaks his teeth on it because there's a shotgun pellet <laughs> in it. And the commander thinks that they actually shot the bird. Right. And also in this chapter, uh, his dad, his dad doesn't own a car because I guess there, you know, there's transportation. He decides to buy a car, mm -hmm. doesn't even know how to drive it and then sells it after, you know, two years. Chapter six, The Apprentice. This is where he gets admitted to five-year tech school, which is Parsons, uh, on-the-job training. I think it's like a machine shop. One of the bands that Brian likes is The Animals. Mm -hmm. And he claims that he soon finds out that the lathe uh, he's running was once run by the bass player for The Animals. Yep. I don't know how he finds that out. And then he discovers Bob Dylan. Yes. There's a, a girl that works at a record store. And something about, I don't know if they, if the albums don't sell in a certain amount of time or if there's something, maybe it was, maybe the cover was damaged. Right. They would return They sent him back. So yeah. she just gives him this Bob Dylan album. Yeah. And he was opposed to it at first because he didn't want to feel like a thief. Yeah. Yeah. But she like insisted that he took his, <laughs> he just took it and <laughs> ran, he said, as fast as he could. And I remember later in the book, he says he doesn't have a turntable, but I know his friend does. So he probably went over to his friends and listened to it. And this is where he starts his first band called Section 5. Yep. And he's the singer. And he tells his dad that he needs to buy a PA system and a microphone. And here, here's the conversation. I thought this was funny. He said, Dad, I said, taking a deep breath, I need a PA system. What? You know, like a microphone and speakers with a little amp for playing shows like because I've decided I want to be a professional singer. And he said that got his attention. A professional what? I'm sure the guy had an accent. I can't do that. <laughs> a su sudden look of panic in his eyes. A professional singer, Dad. Yes, I heard you the first time and I still think you're daft. <laughs> now Johnny Cash is a real singer and you're no Johnny Cash. So forget about it. He does convince his dad... And I guess he has to pay, pays on the P 
PA system. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he was, this is his first band, Section 5. And then they, the first songs they learn are Stone songs, Rolling Stone songs. Mm-hmm. Probably what they were hearing on the radio. Yep. Now also, there's a sad story. Most of this book is not that sad. But there's another budgie that his friend Steve had. His name was Peter the Bud- Budgigar. <laughs> um, he goes over to Steve's house and they're kind of messing around like, uh, you know, just, I don't know, just being goofy. Steve is like farting. Steve's mom's looking for this budgie. They can't find him. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently Steve accidentally sat on the budgie huh, and killed him. Somewhere around here too is when he discovered um, Paranoid by Black Sabbath because he mentioned emptying his pockets of change every day in the jukebox okay. to listen to Paranoid mm-hmm. like over and over again. So I thought that was interesting. So chapter seven is Einklein rock music. <laughs> Brian's band performs their first show, Walker Boys Club. It's a bingo hall. This is when he loses his virginity. Yeah. What a funny story, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he meets this woman. She's obviously older than him, but she ends up taking him back behind the club. Using his chest as a as an ashtray. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's smoking a cigarette. <laughs> While riding him. <laughs> yeah. That whole exchange was just funny to mm-hmm. me. Chapter 8, Crashing and Burning. Now, he, he goes back to Italy with his... I think he went with his friends for two weeks. That's where he gets into a car accident on the yeah. way back and ends up in the hospital. Well, they kept trying to tell the driver to take a break and he refused over and over and over again. And then, I don't know. I think he fell asleep. Yeah, they all fell asleep. And Brian said he woke up in the back, trapped. Mm-hmm. But nobody knew he was back there. Oh, yeah. Because the, the one friend was ejected from the car and... Ended up near a couple who was having a picnic or something to that extent, bleeding. The driver, the ignition key had actually dug into his rib cage really bad. Oh, yeah. And then Brian, the the roof, I guess, had caved in. So mm-hmm. they were trying to get the driver out, and they didn't even know Brian was in the car. He said they started to walk mm-hmm. away and just leave him there <laughs> until he... I don't know if the car was catching fire or if there was gas mm. leaking or something but they all of a sudden they heard him yelp i think he could i think he said he could smell gas yeah. yeah because i think a firefighter ended up getting him out after he heard a noise from the car so that was that was interesting he had a lot of bad luck he could definitely relate to the average person in this book <laughs> <laughs> because the ups and downs are all there also he he was offered a full-time job at that place, Parsons. So he was working. He was in a band at the time. Uh, chapter 9 is Oops. He joins another band called Gobi Desert Canoe Club. And he has a girlfriend, Carol. And I liked that the chapter's called Oops. Yeah. Because um, him and Carol, they go to a band member's house, his friend Dave. And it's New Year's Eve. It's 1966. He says him and Carol wake up after passing out, and they don't remember much after the clock struck midnight, except now Carol is pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> With their first of two children, I believe. Yeah. In March of 67, he actually sees Jimi Hendrix's experience yeah. at Club Agogo. Yeah, you, I think of these, you know, if you could go back in time and 
go see these people that were not famous at the time and playing these small places. Yeah. You hear of bands that they say, oh, our first show, there was 20 people there. You know, it'd be a huge band. Right. You know, it'd be U2 or something, right. you know. <laughs> oh, he played with a lot of big name bands too mm -hmm. before ACDC. And just like uh, when I read the Cheap Trick book, like that certain area where they were from, you know, it seemed like every every other person was in a band and they all knew each other. Right. Some some became, well, Rockford, Cheap Trick became famous. I don't think any other bands did, but some of these areas, you know, they're playing the same clubs. And mm -hmm. so chapter 10, a horrible shower of shit. <laughs> he joins what's pretty much Britain's National Guard. His friend tells him he can get paid 200 pounds if he's there a year, which doesn't sound much like a lot to me even back then, but... I misspoke earlier. This was what felt like torture, not okay. the scouts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And soon he's jumping out of airplanes. Yes. And it sounds like his leader is a real dick. Yeah. <laughs> I assume he was there a year because then he doesn't really talk about it afterwards. Maybe he was just there to get the... 200 pounds. Thank you. Just there for the money. Yeah. Uh, chapter 11, uh, he joins. This is called Geordie Boy. This is a band. You can look them up on Apple Music. Mm -hmm. And we, I listened to them today. Jeremy did too. So did I, yeah. But this is Brian's first pretty much official. Well, it's his first band he recorded right. albums with. This was the big time for him. Yeah. For the first time. Brian gets married. And he does quit the band he's with, but he soon gets an itch to be back doing music again. He start, starts out with a band called USA. Now, this is early 1972. They, start, they send out some demo tapes to record companies, and this label, Red Bus Records, takes notice and they sign them. Uh, Brian gets a one-time payment of 800 pounds to record an album. Now, the record company doesn't like the name USA because it sounds like they're from the other side of the pond. They don't like the name USA. Right. They suggest Gordy, which they're not too happy about because it means you're from a certain part of Britain. And no one outside of Britain would know what it meant. Plus, Gordies were not well liked in certain sections mm -hmm. of England. Now, I looked up Gordy, and it is someone born on the north side of Tyne within a one-mile radius of Newcastle. And that's where Brian was from, Newcastle. Yeah, and they talked about Newcastle brown ales a lot, too. Yeah. Oh, and I'm, uh, I was going to bring this out later, but... Oh, we sorry. Have, we have <laughs> Newcastle brown ale to try. <laughs> no, I, I've, I've had this before. Yes, I've had this before, too. I was going to bring this out later, because this comes up again when Brian auditions for ACDC. Yes. I ruined now, it. Sorry. Newcastle oh, I was gonna say here's a clean is glass. ninety some this brewery's ninety some years old and it started in Eng I think it's still in England, but in the US it's uh, the California disp dispensary, what whatever you distillery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Brian didn't do a lot of drugs. He did mention that in the book. <laughs> he couldn't afford them. <laughs> yeah, there's no mention of you know, except marijuana, I think. Sorry, we got sidetracked there a little bit. Where am I? Yeah. Gordy. Okay, we're, on, we're halfway through the book now. Chapter 12, yeah. Wardour Street. Uh, so exciting things starting to happen. Uh, they put their first album out called Hope You Like It. Mm -hmm. I like that. 
name. Yep. And the song Don't Do That gets some radio airplay. And Jordy tours with Chuck Berry. Yep. Now, I've heard Jeremy was kind of taken aback that Chuck Berry wasn't a nice guy, but I have heard stories. Yeah. So I have this from, this is page 186. It says, late that month on January 27th, we were due to start a German tour at the Fest Hall in Frankfurt, opening for Chuck Berry. Unfortunately, the show was canceled. And then on February 1st, 73, I'm not going to say this name. I'll try it. Niter Sashen Senshall <laughs> in Hanover. Uh, it was, uh, let's see. They did share the bill with Chuck Berry. Now, Chuck would show up. He said, demand payment up front. Now, I saw Chuck. Jeremy and I saw Chuck. Jeremy reminded me he was there. Uh-huh. Uh, at Union County Music Festival in New Jersey. Chuck decided he was going on at noon, which Union County Music Festival they had every year for maybe five or six years. I was sad when they stopped doing it because it was actually free. Uh-huh. And they have three stages. And we'd usually get there late afternoon or three, four o'clock. But I saw Chuck Berry was going to be there at noon. I'm like, we got to see Chuck Berry. Also, the Smithereens played. Apparently, Chuck was still, this was, I don't know what year this was. It was probably about 20 years ago now. Yeah, maybe 20 <laughs> years ago. But Chuck was, you know, in his 80s. Yeah. That's, and uh, he was still demanding payment up front and basically would walk off the stage, get in his limo still, and take off. Well, Brian went into how Chuck used their instruments, like, every night. So he finally got okay. the nerve to ask him for an autograph, and Chuck was like, I signed one autograph oh, a yeah, day, yeah. I already signed one yeah. today, or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh, here it is. After the final show at Frederick, this was the final show, he said, I took the opportunity to approach Chuck Berry. So you, 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 you know that... Brian didn't even try to approach Chuck until the last show. Right. And he asked him for his autograph. Yeah. And he said, I only signed one a day and I've already done it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what if celebrities did that? I signed one and It'd be awful. I understand if you're having a bad day, but right. they did a tour with Chuck. You know, he think he could at least sign something for Brian. Right. You know? Yeah. I thought it was interesting too, when they first kind of got big. And they were getting their money. They didn't really know. And this is naive, you know, younger kids in general. Mm -hmm. But they didn't really know, you know, how much they were getting. They were just happy to get money. They were just happy to to be singing. But at some point, they end up with a Mercedes. But what the catch was, they had to do a commercial advertisement to drive the Mercedes around. And he's like, we didn't care. We had a Mercedes. Okay. I don't remember that. And then they hire this guy, right, mm-hmm. for a roadie. His name's Charlie, it's W-Y-K-E-S, Wikes. Yeah, it sounded like he may have had, like, issues or something. Well, they said he didn't have a clue about being a roadie. Oh, but he could lift things and he was a hard worker. Right. This guy, Vic, so I guess this is a guy in the band, Vic, Malcolm. He tells Charlie, when you're out front tonight, if anything goes wrong, anything's too loud. In fact, if anything all all goes wrong, just wave your hands and we we will stop. So they were into their third song. Charlie starts waving his hands and they stop. 
And they said, what, what's wrong? They've run out of brown ale, says Charlie. That That's funny. a problem. Yeah. If you haven't tried, I think this is, this is probably more a generic brown ale. Mm -hmm. It's like Yingling is a kind of a generic lager, but right. it's not, not too bad. No, not at all. That's what we're drinking right now. Now, the band also meets Roger Daltrey yeah. of The Who on top of the pops. Um, Another band I really like, so I was yeah. happy to read this interaction. Yeah. <laughs> After um, the taping of the show, they went to the green room. And Brian says again for a couple of beers, fully expecting to get thrown out after an hour for not being famous enough. Uh, but it didn't happen. And Roger introduces himself to them. I guess there was a bar in the green room. Hello, lads. How are you doing? Roger takes, I guess, a liking to Brian. Brian's, you know, the lead singer. And then before they leave, Roger takes them aside and says, do you want to come over for lunch on Sunday and have a chat? Yeah. So here's... A young Brian Johnson, <laughs> I forgot his name, I had too many beers. <laughs> yeah, young Brian Johnson meeting, and this was, I don't know the timeline of The Who, but I imagine they were popular, but I imagine they were big, or to Brian, because Brian was, it sounds like he was starstruck, but... I'd say starstruck is a good... Just saying, with, you know, being in the green room, and they weren't famous enough, so... Right. So this is a funny story, because... Brian goes over to Roger's house and he's he, riding a horse. <laughs> well, I get, yeah. <laughs> so he rings the bell at the gate and a woman's voice, voice comes through the intercom. Who is it? Hi, I'm Brian, Brian Johnson from the band Geordie. Oh, Roger's not here right now. If you drive up and park in front of the house, he'll be back soon. So Brian's in a van, probably the touring van. Mm-hmm. So he's sitting in the van waiting, I don't know how long, and he hears horse hooves <laughs> approaching. And he, when he looked up, he said, I was treated to the most sensational sight. It was a beautiful white horse galloping towards me. No saddle. Ridden by a bare-chested and barefoot man in powder blue jeans with long golden curly hair. And he says he seemed to be holding onto the horse by its mane. <laughs> and he said if this isn't rock star I thought to myself I don't know what is and Roger says alright mate uh, you've been here long so that that's kind of a vision yep. Yep. <laughs> out of a movie or something so after their interaction then he takes him to his barn where you're expecting him to put the horse <laughs> back mm -hmm. but no he's turned his barn into a recording yeah. studio I was like that to me was pretty cool yeah <laughs> So in chapter 13, Highway to Nowhere. So Brian and his band, 19, okay, now we're in the 1973. Mm -hmm. They decide to take a little vacation in Torquay. So they think it'd be nice, warm vacation. Um, he says palm trees. I don't know if it's a, I take it it's like a beach town or something. Right. You know, they bring their swim trunks, but they said it was the, it's the, like the coldest there in the history of <laughs> yeah. Torquay at that time. So this is very pivotal in that they catch a band called Fang. They go see a band called Fang. And it's a folksy progressive band. But he says progier. I don't know. <laughs> progier. I guess progier than folk. 
And the lead singer, Fang, is Bon Scott. Yeah. Now, they're staying at a bed and breakfast, and he says uh, later that night, there's a tap on the window, and it's Bon Scott and his band. Apparently, the van broke down. And they come in, they climb through the window and hang out with Brian. But of course, this is, you know, Bon Scott's in band Fang. This is before ACDC. Right. And then they, then they do a tour. This is after, of course, uh, Japan and Australia. Now, even though they were touring, they have two albums out by now. Uh, Brian and the band are mostly broke. Uh, they're making 45 pounds a week. Right. And this is the thing. When they're not touring or recording, they don't get paid. So the bandmates are, they're not very happy and they kind of part ways. But the record company is pushing them to put out a third album. And they offer Brian a house. So Brian and his wife, and I don't know, maybe he has two kids by now, move into the house. And then chapter 14, there's not much on that. It's called Stowaway, but he meets up with his brother Maurice, who is actually a chef on the train that goes from London to Newcastle. So apparently his brother invites friends of his. They get to sit. They, if they sit in the kitchen, I'll give them a free meal. So that's kind of a thing. Uh, they put out the new album, and the new album does very poorly. So whatever they had going just kind of fizzles. Right. They lost all their momentum. Yeah. Now, chapter 15, Bailiff Blues. I think this is around 78, 79. Brian finds out the record company is not paying his mortgage anymore. Yeah. Because I guess they're not making money. The last album was, didn't do well at all. And Brian finds out the house is solely in his name. And the bank or the... The financial company, or I don't know who shows up at his door, but they want to take everything. So he does work out a payment plan of 70, I have here 70, 70 pounds. I have a week. I don't know. Maybe it was a month. I'm not sure. <laughs> but I will say, I would love to go through their court system because the judge just trusts Brian. Mm-hmm. He, couldn't, is, yeah. he couldn't afford a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And he told the story. I, you know, I didn't even know this house was in my name. It was, yeah. I was under the impression the radio, Re- the, the record, record company owned it. Yeah, yeah. The record company owned it. And the judge believes him and actually questions the plaintiff. Like, you know, the record company wasn't making payments on this and you know that he was no longer with that label. Why didn't you yeah. ever try and reach out to Brian? I'm sure Brian never saw a bill or saw a yeah. mortgage payment come in the mail. And the judge almost implied that that exact statement that mm-hmm. the guy was just trying to get the house and not actually trying to collect the payment. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Even though Brian's paying on the house, I take it, though, that his wife is still living in the house for a while. Well, yeah, because even when yeah. they get divorced, she stays in the house with the kids. Well, yeah, he eventually then he moves back with his parents. He's 31 years old. Yep. Which, you know, sometimes happens. We missed yeah. just one thing I wanted to touch on that I thought was funny. <laughs> when he was still with the bandmates, they ate at Kentucky Fried Chicken for the first time oh, ever. Oh, yeah. And they had no idea what it was. They accidentally ended up there, and they mm-hmm. buy a bucket of chicken expecting it to suck, and they ended up buying, like, three more buckets yeah, after yeah. they <laughs> ate it. <laughs> yeah. So that was something I wanted to mention, because that, to me, was hilarious. It is addictive. Oh, yeah. Brian kind of is kind of done at this point with music, rock bands. 
he tries not to watch other rock bands, but he happens to turn on the TV and he sees this new band called ACDC. Mm-hmm. And it's a show called Rock Goes to College. And he's been hearing buzz about ACDC, but he doesn't, he doesn't realize that the lead singer is the lead singer from Fang, Bon right. Scott. Right. He doesn't put two and two together. He realizes that he probably can't go back to his job at Parsons. And he gets a job as a windscreen fitter. Now, in England, windscreen is windshield. Yep. So he's installing windshields on cars. So chapter 16, a sign from above. Brian eventually starts to run his own business. He installs a windshield on some rock star's car. Now, the guy doesn't even get out of the car. He, I guess this limo pulls up and he replaces the windshield. Super fast, like 12 yeah. minutes instead <laughs> of, you know, whatever yeah. the normal time is. I guess before the guy, before they pull away, the guy rolls down the window and I'm not too familiar with... I've heard this song, but I'm not too familiar, but Ian Dury, his mm-hmm. name is, mm-hmm. and he had a song with Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick. Yeah. <laughs> and he gives him a t-shirt. I'm going to have to listen to that song. Yeah. And he gives him a shirt. So Brian, he then thinks, maybe I need to be a singer again. He misses music again. Yeah. He misses yep. music. He goes to get his, his PA. Yeah. Chapter 17, <laughs> he, this is where he goes to get his old PA system back and he describes it with a sound like a large animal being castrated yes cobwebs and dust yeah. and scratches and dents and, <laughs> and why it's I don't know why it's in some warehouse in London it sounded like the record company maybe was storing it for oh, okay. him but I don't know yeah because they told him he could get it at any time because it was his possession yeah but I don't think he had anywhere to put it because they had added on to it since mm-hmm. his, you know, since his touring days. So then he starts his new band. And guess what it's called? It's called Jordy 2. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's Gordy or Jordy. I want to say Jordy, but it's either one. Yeah. And then there was an interesting story in here. There's a band called, of all things, Fog. And it has to do with a fog machine. So the singer Fog, Chris, uh, he says was quite a character. Cockney accent that stood out like a donkey's dick. <laughs> in Northeast, and the love of dramatic stage effects. Uh, so this guy got the idea that all the lights would go out before their concert, and they'd play the theme to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And a blanket of fog would creep out over the floor, then the band members would enter from the back of the room and make their way dramatically through the tables and chairs mm-hmm. to the stage. So he says all of this sounded very cool in theory. But what they didn't realize was that they'd rented a fog machine that was far too powerful for the venue and that the ceilings were low in this place. Once the fog had covered the floor, it started to rise. And he said it wouldn't be a problem in a bigger, you know, theater. Right. So the lights went out, Space Odyssey starts, and all this fog starts to appear. And he said you couldn't see your own hand in front of your face. He says it was fucking scary. (laughs) The band couldn't see where they were going, so they ended up just stranded at the back. And by the time the song came to an end, Space Odyssey, the band hadn't moved an inch. People were coughing, wiping their eyes, and running for the exit. And the concert chairman had to switch the lights back on and open all the windows. 
just so the band could find the stage. He said it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> so that was pretty funny. Gordy 2, he said, was his favorite band up to this point. Mm-hmm. The me- That he had his best times with those three band members. Yeah. I was surprised. This, this second band, Gordy 2... Had a huge, got a huge following, and it sounded like it. They had recorded an album. It might have been bigger than yeah the first one. Well, I, think, I don't know. Was it the drummer had a full time job, but he couldn't get off of work for any period of time? Oh yeah, because he was like the equivalent of like a UPS driver or a FedEx driver. I think. Yeah, I think Brian called his boss. Yeah, or something. <laughs> yeah, and he wouldn't give him time. I think off. when they were about to record an album, right. Because they did one song, mm-hmm. but they reunited with the the record company that initially signed them. That's what's amazing is that they had so many problems and just that Brian, you know, had the, they weren't paying on his house and they actually go back with the Red Bus yeah. record company. But Brian also mentions that it was funny to him to see the bandmates take in all the bullshit from red bus he's like you could tell that they had never heard the businessman pitch before or something yeah they just were looking to be famous or or just want we're happy to be recording an album yeah with with a record company but he also got his famous hat at this time too from his brother an accident in a sense yeah, so Red Bus took interest in them. Brian actually, this is when he begins his own business because he was making, they were, to, they were doing so many shows, he's making a lot of money mm-hmm. with this band. So he starts in, installing vinyl roofs <laughs> on cars. Yep. So he's working, busy, and in the band. Real go-getter. But this time he's not doing, they're not doing all the crazy traveling. They're staying yeah. more local. And his... His brother is actually the one that gives him the hat. It's a driving cap. I was going to wear, I have a similar hat. I was going to wear that tonight, but I didn't. Basically, Brian, uh, his brother noticed he's sweating a lot. Well, his eyes were red. Yeah. Because he was sweating so bad and whatever he worked with, the makeup or whatever, was like going into his eyes. Yeah, and he didn't want to wear the hat at first. Yeah. But then he just kept, and he's worn it ever since. I was going to say, um, to me, that was so cool that he was so against it because it's such an iconic symbol of Brian Johnson. Yeah. It's like Angus with the schoolboy outfit. Oh, Brian yeah. Johnson without the hat would be so strange. <laughs> Chapter 18, and this is where things take a huge turn for Brian. His company's doing very well. Mm-hmm. He's incredibly busy. He's still with the band. And he's even become so popular that sometimes bands want him to audition as a replacement. I remember in this book, he talks about uh, Ronnie James Dio, Rainbow. They were looking for a new lead singer. At this point, he's just pretty happy what he's doing. Well, that was a funny story. Sorry, not to Mm -hmm. cut you off, but Ronnie James Dio's publicist or agent, somebody calls him on the phone. And asks him to start singing into the phone. And Brian Johnson's oh, yeah. like, I'm not going to fucking sing mm-hmm. into the phone. <laughs> like, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was funny. Now, this is where it, this is where we get into the good stuff here. Where he gets a call out of the blue from this German woman. He thinks it's a prank call. Yeah. And she wants him to audition. He can barely understand her. Yeah. She has a heavy German accent. 
and he actually manages she won't she doesn't want to tell him what the band is who the band is and he gets it out of her that it's acdc and she's like oh my god i've said too much or something <laughs> yeah <laughs> now at this point jordy too like jeremy said had recorded their first song and the record company wants an album and this is what's amazing is that at the same time they're about to go to london to record this album right when he gets this call now if he was in london in a recording studio he may not have gotten this call right this is what else is amazing is that brian has no idea that the reason acdc needs a new lead singer is that bon scott has died right because there's no of course social media maybe even it was in the newspaper and he, didn't, he just didn't see it. Yeah, he didn't see it. Yep. He doesn't find out until his friend Ken says, hey, you know that song you sing, Whole lot of Rosie? Mm-hmm. The guy who sings it is dead. And I love his response. Do you have that? He says something like, no, he's not. He's in perfect shape or something. Oh, yeah, perfect he's like health. only 23 or, yeah, or yeah, whatever he says. I yeah, don't he's remember. he's in perfect health or something like <laughs> <Yeah>. that. Yeah. <laughs> Brian's still debating whether to even go to the audition. He has... I think it's the same day he has, he got a commercial for a vacuum cleaner company. Mm -hmm. I think it's Hoover. Mm -hmm. But Brian eventually does, as we know, go to the audition. And I love when they ask him what song he wants to sing. He does not come up with an ACDC song. Oh, what song do you remember? I believe it was a Tina Turner song. I don't remember which one. Oh, okay. (laughs) <laughs> and they kind of thought it was different, but cool. So that was interesting to me. Brian says to himself, this is from page 267. Hang on, Brian. Get yourself together. Get the facts straight. You're 32, living with your mother and father. You've got a successful little business and a successful little band. You're happy with your girlfriend. You've got your two lovely daughters. You can afford things for them. Everything's going great. Why would you do this? I'll tell you why. I fucking have to. <laughs> so he knew in his mind that, I don't know, I have to do this. I have to try it. This is when I was going to introduce the beer, but, you know, when he first meets Malcolm, Malcolm holds out a beer for Brian and says, I believe this is your local brew, and that's the Newcastle yep. Brown Ale. Chapter 19, Brian is asked back for a second audition. They want him to learn Highway to Hell. Now, he borrows, I thought this was funny, he borrows a friend's cassette, but he doesn't want to tell anyone that he's auditioning for ACDC. I was going to say this, too. Um, Well, he borrowed a car from his one friend, Okay. and he borrowed the cassette tape from another friend, and it sounded like the friend didn't want to give him the cassette tape. (laughs) No, he said he gave him the third degree when he asked if he could borrow it. He said, what do you need it for? He said, that's my favorite album, that is, you can't fucking lose it. So here, this is this guy's favorite, probably his favorite band, maybe. Brian is auditioning and doesn't tell his friend. Right. He said, in the end, I had to lie and say, we're thinking of adding some songs to Jordy 2's set list. Right. So after Brian's second audition, he gets a call from Malcolm Young. Brian's trying to get it out of him if he's 100% in the band, because Malcolm kind of hints that they, they want him you know, as the lead singer. Right. But Brian, because of the past things with record companies, he doesn't want to get screwed over or anything. So he asked Malcolm to call him back in 10 minutes. And if Malcolm calls, then he knows he's serious. 
So Malcolm does call him back. And Brian is now the new lead singer of ACDC. So chapter 20, uh, Brian wants to celebrate. It's also his dad's birthday. There isn't any alcohol in the house, except he bought his dad a bottle of, I don't know what this is, famous grouse. Yeah. Some, it doesn't sound good. Some really good whiskey, though. Like, okay. It sounded like, I don't know. So before his dad gets home, he opens the bottle and takes a swig. And then he takes another and another. His dad gets home and he hands his dad the open bottle. <laughs> and he says, happy birthday, dad, holding up the whiskey. I got this for you. He says his dad gives him a funny look. Did you eat my cake too? <laughs> <laughs> he says, oh, I'm sorry about that. I'll buy you another one. Bloody right you will. <laughs> And he says, I've just been offered a job, Dad, a big one, so I wanted to celebrate. And his dad says, a job? With who? ACDC. He says, my dad sat down on his chair with a groan. ACDC, you say? Haven't they just been nationalized? <laughs> <laughs> he put his head in his, in his hands and he said, they're a rock band, Dad. Oh, well, I've never heard of them. He said, in his dad's opinion, if he hadn't heard of a band, that meant they'd failed to achieve any kind of meaningful success whatsoever. Then his mother comes in. I got a new job, Ma. I'm the new lead singer of ACDC. Oh, that's nice, son. Would you like a sandwich? (laughs) (laughs) And that would have been my parents. I don't get from this book that his parents were into music at all. My own dad didn't listen to music, which is sad. And it would have been the same thing if I had gotten hired by a huge band or one that a really big band. My dad wouldn't, wouldn't have cared. He would just be concerned if I was going to make, make a living, make money. There was one person who at least knew what he was talking about. His brother was, I forget how he put it, but like shocked. Like, holy crap, I know who ACDC is. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. At least somebody knew in the family and appreciated how big of an accomplishment was it was. his brother Maurice or we don't, I don't you know, remember which brother it was okay Brian of course has a business going on and he basically hands over the business to him yeah but then he has to he has the task of telling his bandmates in Geordie 2 that he's got a gig with a, another band but he still can't say who it is right no i think he does tell him because he says they know no one could turn down the opportunity. Yeah, at the very uh, end. Yeah, he did. They did say that. Yeah. Brian meets with uh, this guy, Peter Mensch. Mm-hmm. Now, Peter Mensch is very, he's in his 20s, but he eventually becomes ACDC's manager. Right. Uh, I think it's his first band he's managed. So he's managing their affairs. And I have the feeling he has something to do with the record company or the contracts, too. Because he asked Brian about his financial burdens. And they find out that Brian is still paying on an empty house. And they pay the house off for him. Yeah. So the band starts recording at Polar Studios. Well, they also gave him... Sorry, I didn't mean to yeah. cut you off. But they gave him a few perks. They, they gave him just money mm-hmm. straight up. But then they also... He said something about how he was concerned because his bandmates had gigs lined up through oh yeah the they paid month, them and they okay. paid his old band oh yeah like four times what they would have made doing i think it gigs. was a couple thousand in pounds yeah yeah it was it was like two thousand take pounds. care of them yes 
Until they got another job or another yeah. band. Yeah, yeah, until they got a new lead singer. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. So this isn't the little rinky-dink record company that he was with before. Right. Or I guess he had a better contract, of course, with ACDC. So I've heard of this studio before. It's called Polar Studios, and it's in Sweden, and mainly because ABBA records there. <laughs> and I want to say, I think Led Zeppelin, a lot of big bands have recorded here. They're, they're about to record at this studio, but they get, someone else books the studio, <laughs> and it's ABBA. Uh, so they have to move the recording to Compass Point in the Bahamas. And I've heard of that studio before, too. Actually, a person we interviewed, Terry Manning, he is an engineer. He worked for this studio for okay. a while Okay. as an engineer. Now, this is in the Bahamas. I think Brian's kind of taken aback, maybe even ACDC, that they're going to the Bahamas. Yep. Now, the Bahamas today sounds like paradise. You know, I've, I've never been there. But apparently, at this time period... I mean, maybe now too, you know, they have the resorts, but I always heard it, don't wander off away from the resorts. There's people that want to rob you. And a couple years prior to them going there, Robert Palmer, he was recording in the studio and a guy broke into his house and shot his dog and held his parents at gunpoint. So it's not a very safe place. And Chris Blackwell, he was the owner of Compass. Uh, He told Robert Palmer that he was attracted to the island because it was still raw, honest, and undeveloped, uh, just as Jamaica used to be. And this was around 1978. Now, the recording studio was only 150 yards away from where they were staying. Uh, They were advised to use a car to get there, not to walk, and not to go out at night. And they were actually given a machete and harpoons. And the harpoons were not for fishing. (laughs) And Brian said he kept the machete under his bed or under his pillow, pillow or something. I think, yeah. yeah. So we're on the chapter 22. Um, now, Brian starts writing. Now, this is another thing. When Brian, I don't know if it was the first or second audition, uh, they said they were working on a new song. It was Back in Black. Mm-hmm. And Brian came up with the first two lines of the song, just, you know, kind of riffing. Mm-hmm. And you know, that ended up in the song. The lyrics, I always thought ACDC, the lyrics were a little strange. Mm-hmm. And what I gather, this album was written in five weeks and they would come up with the music and then Brian would go write the song almost overnight. Now, I think up until this book, there was this rumor, and I've heard this before. Mm-hmm. I have too. That they were, that Bon Scott had been working on this album back in black. Yeah. There's a video on YouTube. I think it's just audio. They claim it's Bon Scott, but it's not. It's been since then been disputed uh, singing back in black. This album was totally created after Bon Scott's death. And Brian wrote all the songs on it. You know, at the, at the recording studio, they also had to wait for uh, the Talking Heads at one point. Oh, okay. Because they were playing pool, and they were... Brian said he had to explain several times to the lead singer of the Talking Heads 
pool etiquette as far as putting your quarter down. Oh yeah, to yeah. Claim the next game. Yeah, David he said, Byrne. Yeah, yeah, he said David Byrne was not grasping the concept at all, <laughs> but they were still great guys to hang out with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brian, they're moving along, right? And obviously, it sounds like they didn't write these songs in order because Hell's Bells. Brian gets some. He gets writer's block now. Another person, person who worked on this album is Mutt Lang, and I guess I think he's a producer. I know he's married to Shania Twain, and believe it or not, Mutt Lang knew of the band Jordy, and it sounds like he recommended that they get Brian to audition. Yeah, so that might have been the key there. Well, um, and it was interesting too. It came up. This was a little bit prior, but. Bon Scott actually remembered meeting Brian Johnson when he was singing for Fang. And he had told, I don't know if it was his family. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or he had told someone about it, and they ended up telling Brian, and Brian was so amazed that he had left that impression that mm-hmm. Bon Scott had actually mentioned him randomly before he was. Yeah, because he only met Bon briefly. Right. I don't know how long the, you know, to repair that van was, but yeah. <laughs> could have been hours. Yeah. I also found it interesting at this time where they're talking about Back in Black, Brian mentioned that Angus and Malcolm actually had the riffs before he had any words. Yeah, yeah. And they would play the riffs for him, and mm-hmm. he had to put the words yeah. to the beat. I thought that was mm-hmm. insane. Well, that's how this, this whole album was written. Mm-hmm. They would come up with, yeah, the riffs, and then Brian would go back and try and come up with uh, words yep. to go along with it. And he said he always felt like the presence of Bon Scott was there with him, mm-hmm. helping him write those lyrics. Yeah. Now, it's interesting because the, the term Hell's Bells, Brian says back in Dunstan, there was a term Hell's Bells and Buckets of Shit. So that's what he, he remembers. So he said that song kind of threw him off. Because he was <laughs> kept thinking of that. Basically, him and Mutt, they, I don't know, there was, I think there was a storm going on at the time. And, uh, and this is where he says maybe the conversation didn't go exactly like that, where one of them came up with a line and then the other came up with a line. Pouring rain, listen to that wind, it's coming on like a hurricane, you know. Yeah. <laughs> he also mentioned that Hell's Bells, how it reminded him of something negative in a sense and how he thought it was funny that a lot of people would link the song to like the dinner bell going off Mm -hmm. when families were having dinner. Oh, okay. They finished the album uh, and Brian goes home for a while. He goes over to Peter's office and Peter gives him the biggest wad of cash I've ever seen in my life. That's Mm -hmm. what he says. So Brian's about to take a cab home and Peter asked Brian to take his car for a while because the record company had given him a car and it's a stick shift and Peter can't drive it. So he pulls up to his parents' house and his dad sees the car. And of course, the first thing he says, that's a German car. <laughs> Not impressed. Yeah. It's a brand new, um, what, what car was this? Rolls Royce or something? Mercedes? Something like that. Yeah, I don't remember. Another thing is that I didn't know this, but ACDC uh, used an actual cast iron bell. Mm-hmm. For the sound in Hell's Bells. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like from uh, like a keyboard or like a created sound. And then they actually had a bell made that yeah. they could take on tour. I didn't get a chance, but maybe there's footage <laughs> oh, there is. of them ringing I, the bell. I have a couple of concerts from them live. And they bring this huge, they've got a bell, <laughs> they've got the cannons for those. Oh, okay. Rock. Yeah. 
and then they've got a huge ball for ball breaker. Yeah. Okay. They've got a huge wrecking ball that Brian Johnson will mm-hmm. actually uh, <laughs> like ride. <laughs> and I found this odd is that Brian gets the album, uh, the first pressing on vinyl, and he doesn't have a turntable. Yeah. He still doesn't have still a turntable. He still doesn't have one. Yeah. So he calls up his friend Derek and he goes over to his house to play the album. And the only thing his friend says is that he's singing way too high. And I remember earlier in the book, I guess, I don't know who it was, maybe it was Mutt, that wanted him to sing at a higher register, yeah. some of it. In the studio, yeah they, yeah. they told him he needed to get higher. and Maybe to give it all he had, he, you know. He said, you know, he thought there was no way possible he could do that, but they pushed it out of him. And then the uh, chapter 24, he mentions that the song Shake a Leg was performed once and never again. And it doesn't say why. And this was the first show. It was performed uh, in the encore. He says it's the first and last time we ever played Shake a Leg. Maybe they didn't like that song. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So this is cool. Brian gives his brother Maurice a job Mm -hmm. as a chef to the band when they're on tour. Yeah. Uh, he bought a new house for his parents. Now, all along, Brian never puts two and two together that the guy he met from the band Fang was the guy he's replacing that had passed away, Bon right. Scott. Right. Until Bon Scott's mother, when they're touring Australia, she wants to meet Brian. So Brian goes over there, and it's Bon Scott's mother and his brothers. And then it comes up in conversation. That Bon was the guy in Fang who Brian and his bandmates met in Torquay. And up until this point, he just thinks he's never, he, he knows he's never met Bon Scott before, but he has. Right. <laughs> and then we get to the last uh, chapter. It's the epilogue. And Brian talks about the passing of Malcolm, yeah. who had dementia. And what's sad is that Brian was in the hospital for his hearing problem. And Malcolm was in the same hospital. But he can't go visit Malcolm because Malcolm's family only wants family members, which I don't understand. But and this is when Brian, Brian's been in the band a long time now. Yeah. Yeah. Because this was like 2016, maybe. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. It was like the mid 2010s. Yeah. <laughs> Brian at this point can no longer perform and they get Axl Rose yeah. for the Rock or Bust World Tour and... I watched video of Axel doing Thunderstruck, and I just, I don't know if I could handle a whole concert <laughs> with <laughs> Axel singing. I give him credit for trying. It's a very hard, yeah. very hard shoes to fill. Mm-hmm. And he had to do it in the middle, not even the middle, it was near the end of a tour. And I mean, hey, he gave it his best shot. That's all you can ask for. Brian, I don't understand this because he starts racing cars. And the sound of the cars is, like, incredibly loud. I mean, maybe they wear ear gear, but with his hearing problems. Uh, But Brian eventually gets help for his hearing problem where he can hear with a new device. He says, uh, one day I was contacted by a wonderful man named Stephen Ambrose, an audio and hearing expert from Nashville, who started making in-ear monitors back in the 1960s when he was a teenager. When we first met up, he brought along this machine that looked like a car battery, and he hooked me up to it. And then he put him through all kinds of tests, and the way he explained it, the earpiece part of it was a kind of prosthetic eardrum using a tiny inflatable bubble to conduct the sound. 
And he says at the time he was still working on miniaturizing it, which he's since achieved. They recorded a new album, which came out in November 2020. It's Brian's 11th album with ACDC. I also found kind of strange that Brian at some point was told he didn't have to write the lyrics anymore <laughs> to yeah. the songs. Yeah. So I assume Angus is writing the, the lyrics. That's what I assume. And Brian says he thinks it's a management decision. He says it wasn't anything to do with me. And he said, I never thought of it that much. Okay, let the guys go ahead and do it. And he says, I must admit, I miss some of my lyrics. He says, there were some lovely tongue-in-cheek ones. Mm. Have a drink on me. And you shook me all night long. She always kept her motor clean. We all know what I meant, but it's the double entendre I miss. <laughs> he says, I'm fine with it. It doesn't bother me at all. And then Brian um, was actually last year at the Taylor Hawkins tribute, but he sang with the lead singer from The Darkness. He also talked in here about getting the opportunity to sing with Muse, but he was so excited that he forgot to check in with his management to see if there was any legal ramifications. Mm -hmm. And of course there was. Yeah. So he showed up to this venue and couldn't sing. Oh, yeah. He had to come right. back a year later, and then he was able to do it. Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of cool. But uh, he never listened to Axl Rose mm -hmm. when Axl replaced him. He said he couldn't, he couldn't bear to hear someone else singing his lyrics. And then just the description of what was wrong with He's his He's probably ear. better off not listening to that. <laughs> <laughs> because it sounds like what happened was they were out in the rain in Canada, as we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. But then because he flew that same night... His he get he got an infection in his ears, and it crystallized. And it crystallized, <laughs> yeah, in the air. So he had all this liquid buildup in his ear, and they had to actually chisel it out. Mm -hmm. He's so that, lucky you can hear anything. Yeah, that's how he lost his hearing. I hope they decide to tour. I hope they tour one more time. I will not miss them again. I mean, he's seventy-five. I think I think Angus is a little younger. Mm -hmm. I think he said. Six years younger, maybe? I could be wrong on that. Yeah, Angus might be late 60s. I think that's what it said yeah. in the book. But that's one band. I know they're probably the loudest band out there, but that's one band I'd, I'd like to see at least once. I thought it was interesting, too, hearing him describe Angus as this soft, easygoing guy until he got his guitar mm -hmm. and got ready to get on stage, and he's like, he was a different person. You couldn't yeah. even... You couldn't even wish him luck because mm -hmm. he was once he, he was put that in the zone. Yeah, once he put that schoolboy outfit on, he was a different person and just mm -hmm. so locked in that you couldn't even get through to him. And he said, "I don't know how he brought the energy he brought every single night." I think that's like a lot of performers. Yeah, know? and I've said it before about Alice Cooper, but you know, Alice Cooper had to separate his stage persona from his real life. Mm -hmm. And that's how he stopped doing drugs, alcohol. When he's on stage, he's, he's probably in the zone. He's Alice Cooper. But when he gets off the stage, he's just, you know, a regular person, not the rock star. <laughs> you know, there's some people like that. They, they're always on and they're not, I don't think they're genuine. They're doing that, but. So I loved, I loved this book. Yeah, it was a great book. We highly recommend, even though we've, I mean, the book's 300 and some pages. We didn't really tell you everything. No, there's still a lot that was missing. We just covered some of our favorite things. Yeah, there's a lot of good stories in here. And 
you know, one thing, it, it's not a lot to do with ACDC, but at the end of the book, he does mention that maybe there's another book. So hopefully we'll get more about the other albums yep. and touring and all that stuff. Yeah. Especially he has a lot of downtime now. Unless they start touring again. Well, and he mentioned, too, you know, with Power Up, how it was doing so well, and he took a jab at the critics that they finally were happy or something. I don't remember his exact words, but... I think it's a solid... I think it's an ACDC album. Yeah, I liked it. I bought the collector's edition, Mine Lights Up, like USB. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I have that. The box thing, Mm -hmm. yeah. And it plays one of the songs. Yes, yes. That was pretty cool, but... (laughs) Then COVID hit. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they were planning to tour, but he mentioned in the book about how COVID kind of took any life that they had from the album out of. Oh, yeah. Potent, like he didn't say about touring, but that kind of was the direction that I was led mm-hmm. as I was reading it. Yeah. So curious to see what they're planning to do because they've never really done. And I mean, bands don't always do this, but they haven't done a farewell tour of any kind. No. And it's kind of typical to yeah. do something, you mm-hmm. know, to ride off into the sunset. So so KISS is finally, they announced next year. I think it's next. <laughs> Are they doing farewell tour? That's, I think the 0. last show will be in New York City. Okay. It's weird because I was watching NBC News and they're talking about KISS. Because KISS is in the news now because they were on Howard Stern. Okay. And they were in full makeup. That's the whole thing. And Howard they did. Stern? Yeah. Okay. And they did. They played. They were in full makeup. Wow. And I, I was impressed because Gene Simmons actually talked about Cheap Trick because they, they go way back. Mm-hmm. They open for each other. But Gene said that Robin Zander is one of the greatest rock and roll singers of all time. Wow. Coming from Gene Simmons. There you go. Who is not one of the greatest <laughs> rock and roll singers. Again, uh, The Lives of Brian, you can find us anywhere. And we have the hardcover, and like I said, we have the signed version. So I, I assume a paperback might be coming out yeah. at some point. Even if you're not crazy about ACDC, um, you know, it's a, it's a good um, biography, you know. And there is an audio book, too, which Brian yeah, narrates, narrates himself, I guess. So mm-hmm. that's pretty cool as well. Next month, Jeremy, I'm giving Jeremy uh, time off. So Mike will be with me. Jeremy's got a lot going on this month, so that's a good thing. <laughs> We've got a couple interviews coming up this month. Yeah, Mike will be joining me every once in a while. But Jeremy's got a lot, you know, autograph shows. And and I'm doing my own podcast now, too, so. Yeah, let's mention, uh, <laughs> I like to mention Jeremy's, mention we, your podcast. Well, we just interviewed Sean Whalen. Oh, yeah. So that was pretty cool. Jim got a chance to listen to that, shared it. He was in Twister and... um People under the stairs, yeah. And he's got a new movie he's working on about a sock monster. Sock monster, yeah. Yeah. They're calling it a creature feature, Mm -hmm. and he's comparing it to like Little Shop of Horrors. So, oh, okay, that should be fun. Yeah. Now, uh, my friend Kristen and I do a podcast called the Horror Con Lounge, Mm -hmm. and we just rate movies. We interview. You know, we're working on interviewing anybody who's been in horror movies that you know can answer some questions and. Mm-hmm. Give us a backstory of yeah, some so of the they, things they were doing. And they review movies, and they did one on Stephen King I like. And, uh, we got a lot of good feedback. Yeah, if you like horror, horror movies, uh, check that out. And we and, try to cover music in there, too, because of my love of music. So mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Like we had a Nightmare on Elm Street episode where we talked about some of the musical scores throughout some okay. of the different movies. Mm-hmm. And if you have, um, if you're in a band or even if you're a singer, you, uh, in the last, let's say year or two, you recorded some music, you want us to give it a listen. Uh, we could talk about your band or yourself. You can email us at nogoodmusicpodcast at gmail.com. We'll give it a listen if we like it. We may be interviewing you because um, I don't think it was the last podcast, but the podcast before we talked about uh, Francesca Tarantino, 14-year-old, who has a song, My Runaway, and that's one of the interviews we're doing this month. We're going to be talking to her. Her favorite band, she's 14, her favorite band is Kiss. There you go. So I'll be wearing my Kiss shirt, and, and she's working on new stuff. She's, who knows? She's got, she's got very good mentors her guitar teacher is on that song. Just incredible guitar solo on that song. And she's got a great voice, too. And she emailed us out of the blue. She only has one song out, but coming a fan of hers and can't wait to hear you know more from her. So like I said, email us and uh, we'll give your music a listen. Thanks for listening today. Hope you enjoyed. Bye-bye. You've been listening to No Good Music. Intro and exit music by the band 99%. Today's show was produced and edited by Jim Thatcher and recorded at the Did You Say 7 Studios in Washington, New Jersey. You can find No Good Music on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Pandora, and almost anywhere you listen to podcasts.